Now, I want you to relax. These empty chairs up here on the platform <laughs> do not mean that Clint Eastwood is waiting in the wings. but I would like to make your day. <laughs> well, this morning as we begin, I want to ask you to think with me for a moment or two as well as listen, because before I get into the book of James today, I, I need to take a moment and frame our subject. You see, I cannot talk about temptation without first establishing that right and wrong, moral and immoral, good and evil do exist, and they are very real, and that God and God alone is the fixed point of reference for us to know how to live our lives. I want you to think of it as this stationary chair right here. A fixed point of reference has two requirements. Number one, it has to be fixed. That is, it cannot move. And secondly, in order for it to be a point of reference, it has to be separate from you. And just as sailors needed a fixed point of reference like due north on a compass or like the position of the stars, to successfully navigate the oceans, we humans need a fixed point of reference. So we know how to live our lives, we know how to navigate our lives. And this fixed point of reference answers the important foundational question, who says? Who says what's good? Who says what's moral? Who says what's right? Who says what's evil? Who says what's immoral? Who says what's wrong? Who or what is the authority in the universe, if any, that directs us and holds us accountable? Well, hands down, the best answer to this question is in the Bible book of Acts, chapter 17. It was declared by the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill as he preached to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Now, these were men who worshipped knowledge, and they were always ready to hear some new idea. These were men who were intellectuals, and they were humanistic, and they were rationalistic to the core. But Paul stepped up on Mars Hill and he rocked their world with these words. Look at the text. It's his revelation of the unknown God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live, that is, he is not confined in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. 
God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Now, there are seven foundational truths that are embedded here, and they are the cornerstone of a Christian worldview, and they're also very relevant for our topic today. Those seven truths are, number one, that God is our Creator, that He is the originator of the universe and all life. Paul said He made the world and everything in it. Secondly, God is our source of ultimate authority. He's our fixed point of reference. Paul said He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Thirdly, He is self-existent. That is, His existence doesn't depend on anything or anyone. He does not need anything, but He gives to all men life and breath and everything else. And then fourthly, this is part of a Christian worldview, God created you for a purpose. He made every nation of men to inhabit the whole earth, and He determined the times and the places where they should live. And fifth, God wants a relationship with you. God did this so that men would seek Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. Sixth, God is in control, for in Him we live and move and have our being. And finally, God is personal, and He can be known, and He can be loved as a father. Paul said, we are His offspring. Okay, so God is the fixed point of reference in the universe. He's the one Aristotle referred to as the unmoved mover, like this stationary chair. But what if you don't buy it? What if you want an alternate explanation that provides more flexibility and a little more human freedom? What if you don't like the moral order that God has ordained in His Word and revealed in the person of His Son? Well, there's only one other way to go, friends, and it's illustrated by this other chair. It's what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. He gave us our own chair, and he put wheels on it. Whee! I can determine right and wrong for myself. I can decide moral and immoral for myself. I can determine what's good and evil myself. Well, then like Adam and Eve, you can determine evil for yourself. And when you go with this approach to determining right and wrong, moral and immoral, everything is up for grabs. Everything is up for grabs, and it will result ultimately in Charles Darwin's survival of the fittest. Whoever's the biggest, whoever's the strongest, whoever's the most powerful makes the rules and has the control. So it's ultimately going to be the state. 
the state that has this kind of raw authoritarian power. Think Nazi Germany. Think the Soviet Union. Think communist China. Think the Muslim Arab states. Think North Korea. Think Cuba. All of these are representative of nations that have replaced God with the state. You take God out, the state will always take over. And that's why right now we got deep division in the realm of values in our nation. It's why we have different opinions that divide people on subjects like partial birth abortion and same-sex marriage. We're talking about two worldviews here. All this to say, with a Christian worldview, temptation is a reality. But with a non-Christian worldview, temptation is mythical. It's irrelevant. Either God is in control or you are in control. And if you're in control, it's going to be you in the state. Now, in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 13, we're instructed about how to be victorious in our temptations. So I want us to go to the text, and we'll read these words. James writing, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. Well, what can we learn here in this paragraph or two that will help us experience the good life now? Well, we can learn some things about temptation, and the first one is that temptation is unavoidable. Remember it said, when tempted. It was last week we learned that troubles are an inevitable part of life in a fallen world. Well. So are temptations. There's unavoidable bad stuff that will impact us on the outside from time to time, and there is unavoidable bad stuff that will try to invade us on the inside. And being a strong Christian does not make you immune to temptation. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 declares that even Jesus was tempted when He suffered, and Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. He had temptations and so will you. In fact, I think if you're a serious Christian or a Christian leader, you're actually going to draw fire from the enemy because he knows if he can strike down a shepherd, an influencer, then the sheep will be scattered. I've got a vivid memory of a time when the tempter drew a bead on me, tried to get me in his crosshairs. It was obvious to me. I was in the St. Louis airport with a long layover. I was waiting to catch a delayed commuter flight home 
to Joplin, and they were doing work on the terminal, and I was way down at one end by myself. There was literally no one around in the gate area. And as I sat there reading a book, I heard the sound of high heels and a roller bag. And I looked up just as a noticeably attractive woman walked over and sat down right beside me. There were easily a hundred other places for her to sit. I was immediately uncomfortable. I don't know whether you've ever had that feeling of being in the presence of evil. It felt like the twilight zone to me. She said, so, are you married? Folks, I honestly was speechless. I could not think of a good witnessing line at that moment. I was so rattled, I just said, very. Got up and walked away. She tried to hustle. I grabbed my duffel, and boy, did I shuffle. <laughs> Charles Colson tells of being in an international airport for a long layover when an Asian man carrying a copy of his book, Born Again, came up to him and he said, I know who you are from your picture on the back of this book. I've been following you around for the last hour, watching where you go and what you do. I wanted to see if you were a true Christian. Discipleship journal readers ranked the areas of greatest temptation and spiritual challenge for them. Here they are in order. Materialism, pride, self-centeredness, laziness, sexual lust, anger, envy, gluttony, and lying. Now, there are ways to limit your exposure to these temptations, but you probably are not going to avoid them altogether. But listen, if you struggle with materialism, cancel your credit cards or limit yourself to one credit card, and for goodness sakes, don't go shopping. If you struggle with pride, get into mowing, get into the setup and cleanup around the church here. That'll take care of it. If you're self-centered... Make a conscious effort to prune all the first-person pronouns out of your vocabulary. Bite your tongue every time you want to say, I, me, my. If you struggle with laziness, get into helping with our children's ministry. Oh, that'll cure it. If it's lust, you may want to go home and cancel some magazine subscriptions or some television channels that you subscribe to. Stay away from people. Stay away from places that cause you to stray in your mind. If it's anger, get yourself an accountability partner who will ask you the hard questions and will tell you the hard truth. And if it's envy, start keeping a gratitude journal. If it's gluttony, sew your lips together. I don't know what to do. <laughs> if it's lying... 
force yourself to confess it to the person, I guarantee you, if you own up to it a time or two, you'll quit doing it. Pastor friend a few years ago boxed up his undergraduate and graduate diplomas and sent them back to his alma mater with a letter of confession to the administration and faculty. He had cheated as an undergraduate and a graduate student, and he was convicted that he needed to make it right. Remember, the Christian life is a life of perpetual conflict. It's a spiritual battle that is waged daily, and temptation plays no favorites. Everyone who desires to live a God-honoring life is wrestling with temptation, whether they appear to be or not. But temptation itself is not a sin. It's simply an invitation to sin, and Jesus received this invitation again and again, and He refused it every time. So temptation is unavoidable. But what else can we learn? I think we can learn here that temptation is personal. Look at verses 13 and 14. No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone, but each one is tempted by his own evil desire. Now, what James is doing here is he's calling us to assume personal responsibility for handling temptation. We must not blame anyone else, shift the responsibility to anyone else. Temptation does not come from God, and it's not God's fault if we yield to temptation. Now, it seems that we humans have a tendency to want to blame God when we fall into temptation. And that's as old as the Garden of Eden. When God confronted Adam for his disobedience, you remember what he said? The woman you put here with me, she made me do it. Genesis 3.12. Then Eve said, the serpent deceived me. He made me do it. Genesis 3.13. Someone said, God put the responsibility on Adam. Adam put the responsibility on Eve. Eve put the responsibility on the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Well, today, today we carry on the tradition of the first pair with the very same subtle reasoning. Here's what we say. People behave the way they do because that's how God made us. He made us with these hormones, these desires, these appetites, these urges, these impulses, this temperament, we can't help doing what we do. Because if we can say, I was born this way, I was born this way, we think somehow that takes the responsibility for sin off of us, and it becomes God's fault. And James refutes this idea that temptation to evil comes from God. Charles Swindoll says a literal translation of this phrase would be, don't even remotely suggest that God has anything to do with your temptation. But we humans are good at playing the blame game. We don't blame it on God. We, we like to keep the personal responsibility for our own failures and sins off of us, and so we're going to find someone else to blame. And so we say, my mother... My mother was a drama queen and had a volatile temper, and that's why I can't control myself at home. My dad was a heavy drinker, and that's why I have such a problem with alcohol. A good friend of mine in high school smoked dope. He's the one who turned me on to marijuana. I was molested by a family member. That's why I have victimized children. Now listen. 
It's true that such experiences could put a person in a deficit position in terms of being tempted, but shouldn't it work the opposite way? That is, we should be repulsed sufficiently by these past experiences that instead of using them as excuses to repeat our morally responsible behavior, we'd swing the pendulum the other way. And we would make a conscious effort to resist those sins. Temptation is personal. Temptation is also predictable. In verses 14 and 15, he says, Each one is tempted when by his own, once you notice these underlying words, by his own desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I want to track temptation's predictable pattern here. It starts with desire. Now, no problem. No problem yet. Desires are normal. Without them, we couldn't function. Desires keep us alive, keep us healthy. It's when we satisfy these desires in a way that is outside the will of God. That's when we get into trouble. It's when the desire to eat becomes gluttony, when the desire to sleep or rest becomes laziness or slothfulness. Sexual expression within the bond of committed love in marriage is God's good plan. It's His best for us. But you seek this gratification outside of marriage, it becomes sin, and it will alienate you from God and cause other problems. When desire becomes obsession, that's when it can damage us. That's when it can destroy us. Well, then there's deception. And James uses two very telling words in the text to show how desire can lead to deception. And the words are translated in the New International Version, dragged away and enticed. I actually like the Revised Standard Version words better lured and enticed. Because the word here, translated lured, is a fishing term, and the word enticed is a hunting term. Now, a lure on a fishing line is designed to first attract the fish and then to hook the fish. And fish, they have little pea brains. Fish aren't smart. Now, I know some of you fishermen would want to argue with me on that point, but fish are not smart. You've never seen a trained fish. I rest my case. They have little brains, but they got big eyes. They've got big eyes, and the fish sees that lure, and he takes that lure, and he's got a hook. It's got a hook in it, and he winds up in somebody's frying pan. Now, now the word entice, the enticement, a hunting term, enticement is usually bait. Or maybe it's a mating call that's used to attract and then bag the game. So, the ducks are going to be flying south soon. They're going to be big 220-pound men in duck blinds with big shotguns. Poor little defenseless ducks flying south for the winter. <laughs> ducks have ears. Have you ever seen the little ducky ears? They're, they're really... They're really cute, and the, the ducks can hear, they can hear quite well, 
Now, they have little pea brains, too. But they got good ears. And so they, they hear the quack, 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 quack. They fly over to investigate, and suddenly it's quack, quack, boom, boom. And they are in the water, and a golden retriever has his mouth clamped around their neck. Well, what happened to the fish and the duck? Well, the fish was lured by his desire. The duck was lured by his desire. But folks, listen. We're not dumb fish, and we don't want to be dead ducks. So the thing we need to do is to shut our eyes to the lures and stop up our ears to the enticements of the tempter. Now, this is the battlefront. This is the battlefront when it comes to temptation. Are you going to protect your thought life? And the way you protect your mind is you post sentries by the two primary orbs by which things get into your mind, your eyes and your ears. Now, if you look at anything, read anything, if you use your eyes as a filter, if you use your ears for a filter, stuff, bad stuff is going to get through into your head, and it's going to govern the direction of your life. This is the place. This is the place to do battle. Shut your eyes. Stop up your ears. Because sin promises pleasure, but it always delivers pain. I know that's trite. I want to say it again. Sin always promises pleasure. It always delivers pain. That's a very simple but a very profound truth. Adultery seems like a pleasant escape from reality at the time. But when your marriage is ruined and you only see your kids on weekends, the pain far outstrips the pleasure. And partying with friends seems like a good time. But when you see the police cars flashing lights in your rearview mirror or your car wrapped around a tree and your friends seriously injured, the pleasure is just not worth it. Third step in this process is disobedience. This is... The deadly, next step in the deadly downward spiral, desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. Once your desire has conceived, it will give birth to sin. You're not going to abort the process. You've got to perform the abortion earlier. You've got to abort the things that are trying to get into your mind through your eyes and ears. If you don't do that... Then you run the risk of being lured and enticed by your desire. And once that happens, you're going to find a place. You are going to find a time to act out. So keep your mind pure by shutting your eyes, plugging your ears to the sights and sounds of this world. Don't be lured and enticed by your desire because when that happens, you commit the act. And then there's this last step of death he mentions. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Now, there's three ways to understand the death he's talking about here. The first is physical death, and sometimes physical death can result from sin if our sin involves reckless conduct. It, it can result in physical death. Or it could be talking about the second death, which is hell. It can result, it can result from sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. The second death hell if there is no repentance. That's 
certainly true. But I think the the death that James may be speaking about here is not physical death, and it's not the second death, hell. I think I think he's talking about a death like existence. When you die to the presence of God, you die to the reality of God, you die to the things of God. Sin can cause us to die inside. People who have been interviewed about a tragedy like the tragedy that happened in the theater in Aurora, Colorado, where the young man came in and sprayed an audience of people with gunfire. They were interviewed. They said, in his eyes, you could just see he was dead on the inside. It looked like he was vacant. He was empty. There was nothing there. And you've probably seen mugshots taken of criminals who have committed heinous crimes. Isn't it interesting to look at their faces, to look into their eyes? They can seem empty on the inside, dead on the inside. I think that's the death that James is talking about. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death to all that's good and all that is God. Now, if you want to be victorious over temptation, you need to take a long, hard look at it and analyze it. And if you do, you come to one conclusion. If you look at desire, you look at deception, you look at disobedience, you look at death, you'll come to one conclusion. Temptation is just not worth it. Well, finally, temptation is conquerable. Verses 16 to 18, he says, do not be deceived. I think that's an interesting placement of that imperative. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. I really love this paragraph of Scripture that tells us we can be victorious in our temptations, and it's all because of God. You know what this text reveals? It reveals, first of all, that God is the giver of every good endowment, every perfect gift. God is, a, God is the one who is the source of every good thing in your life. The gift of your husband, the gift of your wife, the gift of your children, the gift of your grandchildren, your health, your happiness, your good memories of the past, your hopes and dreams for the future, your freedom, your job, your income, your retirement, you name it if it's good He is the one you praise. He is the one you thank. And don't be tempted to think that there's something out there that's better than what he can give you, what he offers you. That's the false promise of the world. The world holds up Vegas. Ah, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The best the world can hold up on a platinum platter. God is the source of every good thing in your life. If it's good, he would not withhold it from you. And he only tells you to avoid the things that are going to be bad for you. Well, secondly, God does not change. Did you catch that? He's not like shifting shadows. He is your fixed point of reference. You never have to wonder about his intentions toward you. You never have to wonder about how he feels about you. You never have to wonder about whether you matter to him. 
And you can always count on him to be in the same place with respect to what is right and wrong. Thirdly, God wants you. He wants you. Broken though you may be, damaged by sin, he wants you to be born again. It's in that passage. He wants you to become his child. He wants you to experience his grace. New birth through the word of truth by believing and repenting and being baptized and living a faithful Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. He wants you to be born again through the word of truth. And finally, God wants the good life. Actually, He wants the best life for you now. He wants you and He wants me to become His first fruits, His best fruits living demonstrations. He wants us to be living demonstrations of the best that He can do with the yielded life. And friends, we can be, we can become what He has wanted us to be from the beginning of creation. He has wanted us to be the pinnacle of all He has created. And it can begin today for you. It can begin today with a breakthrough, your decision to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, to make His church your forever family. 